Hello and welcome to the Hackable You podcast. My name is Ed and I'm your host and you're joined by my two co-hosts, Alex and Will. Good evening, guys. This is episode two. We've made it to the second round. How are we doing? How's your week been in this in this time of lockdown? It's been good, I guess. I guess every day is starting to feel like Groundhog Day for me. But, um, but you know, it, it's, a, it's a necessary evil, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. I think the government are saying we're nearing some form of curve. I honestly don't know whether I believe it or not, but mm, we'll see. Alex, how about you? You've been coping all right? Uh, yeah, Netflix and chill, I think, for me. has been, been the best way to cope with this lockdown. Um, plenty and plenty of alcohol. Uh, <laughs> it's the only way I seem to be getting through it. I think on that note, given this is our second podcast, I'll crack open a beer. <laughs> right, okay. So... It's been an interesting couple of weeks since we've put the uh, first episode out there. Lots has changed in the kind of cyber security sphere. Naturally, coronavirus still remains to be a, a major headline. And I think we all agreed that we didn't want to be a massive focus on that. But, you know, definitely it's been it's been playing its part with um, organisations furloughing workers off, with more mouse spam and, um, and exploit attempts coming using the coronavirus campaign. I think we're going to constantly start to see this. But realistically... There's other stuff going on in the cyber world and cyber news that I think we should bring to the forefront and let people know about and have some good discussion about. So without further ado, we'll jump into the cyber news of this week. Okay, so our first news topic looks back again at Zoom. Last episode, we covered Zoom bombing and Alex gave us a really good introduction to what that is and and, and how it's impacting people. I think as Zoom... Zoom's popularity grows and their usage is going through the roof at the moment. More and more issues are being found. I think they're under the magnifying glass a little bit, which is really interesting to see how quickly the industry is um, uh, focusing on such an application. But however, in the last couple of weeks, we've learned that Zoom hires an ex-Facebook security professional to um, aid them in their journey of securing the application. So, Alex, I know you did a bit of digging into this. Uh, What have you found and what do you think this means for Zoom? Zoom have come under uh, increasing scrutiny recently, you know, be it for the fact that they've had a lot of security issues just sitting there and they've just been brought to light because of the increase in users or people are now, as you say, digging deeper and deeper and they're under more of a spotlight. Um, people are looking at, looking at Zoom with a, with a huge magnifying glass. So they've hired uh, Facebook's ex-chief uh, security officer. He was also uh, before that working at Yahoo and he has actually quite a good list of credentials well, he's got he's got a big challenge on his hands here. I think there's a, a very uh, big balance here between is it Zoom's problem to fix their security or does the problem lay with the user? We speak about this a lot in kind of organisations and corporate entities that security is everyone's responsibility. I do believe that if you're the type of person that's jumping on the bandwagon to use Zoom for the virtual pub quizzes or to get through this, you know, area of social distance, yes, there's an attitude, an educated attitude that needs to be taken as to this new application you're using. I think we have to ask the question, are Zoom making that easy for people to understand? Um, uh, Hiring, you know, an ex-Facebook security professional into that area to help drive the right relevant security changes and discussion will only benefit them and, and probably has come at the perfect timing to get a real key focus on some of the core issues such as the vulnerabilities in the software the fact that they're under the microscope and that hackers and um, security researchers are probably trying to find more issues than normal but there is the simplicity of 
misuse or not understanding the application that, that that can cause the same sort of negative press that they have been seeing. I think we're only going to see more of it and this won't change. Look across the board at the other kind of um, conferencing applications such as WebEx, BlueJeans, even Microsoft Teams, which we're using here. They've not come under the same scrutiny that Zoom have. And I think that's really interesting because they're all more or less built the same way. Um, and no one else is really making comment about how they're not impacted the way that Zoom were impacted or, or you know, maybe they just are not as popular. Maybe Zoom have got their marketing and their, their business model right that they've captured everyone and that really are the only focus for that reason. I think um, that with Zoom, what you have to bear in mind as well is they seem to have captured a fairly wide audience base. They have the professional market and they also have quite a lot of the casual, you know, personal market as well, personal users, because, you know, loads of my friends have started using Zoom and they are they all come from backgrounds of people who have never used um, those sort of services before. So I think you're right in some, some respect. I think Zoom's marketing has clearly led to a, a wide audience base that has, that has probably meant that they have been the, the kind of main focus for, for all this attention at the moment. I'd be really intrigued to see if Microsoft Teams or if Cisco WebEx uh, had the same sort of mainstream commercial success that we're seeing at the moment, would they be under the same scrutiny? Would they be seeing the same issues? And my opinion is it's most likely all, all these products have their own vulnerabilities. But I think that uh, Zoom has a little bit of a, of a hard time because they're under the microscope just due to their popularity. We'll just have to sit and watch and wait to see what else happens in the Zoom space. And like you said, Alex, the other, the other vendors, it's going to be really interesting um, and hopefully, you know, another podcast episode at some point, we can look back at what happened during this time and how the increased usage in um, this video conferencing software um, has kind of shaped the way and changed. OK, so the second topic we have is actually something that is, I guess, at really high level to do with security. I find it really interesting and actually quite funny. Alex, I know that you, you also looked into this for us uh, this week, and it's all to do with Harry and Meghan Markle, the ex royals are we allowed to say that i feel like that's you know against the royal family but they are indeed uh, no longer part of the royal family in some way um alex what have you found uh, that relates to harry and Meghan markle this week uh so harry and Meghan, post royal family are now trying to set up their own business uh they've decided to set up a, an organization called archwell the archwell foundation uh, incorporates their 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 son's name uh, unfortunately, they didn't think to uh, try and register the domain names associated with this before they uh, released it to the press. So somebody has made Archwell Foundation as a domain. And when you visit the domain, it redirects to a YouTube video playing the uh, song Gold Digger by Kanye West. Uh, so uh, trying to stay uh, politically impartial uh, or loyalty impartial. Uh, but it's, re it's really interesting because for me, that... Uh, that just illustrates a disconnect there because you can translate that to so many organizations that are happening right now. The disconnect between the business and the security operations center. The business comes up with a brand new idea or a brand new part of the business that needs to have a website and they don't inform security about it. So security are not able to ensure that there's threat intelligence, there's risk management. They're not able to ensure these domains have been purchased. Uh, I just find it really interesting that at the very, very, very top of the tower, things like this are happening. Uh, and from, from a black hat point of view, with my black hat on, it's a missed opportunity. Rather than just putting a gold digger video, 
why weren't they trying to fish people fish people why weren't they setting up uh you know a clone website of the company and trying to and trying to steal details that's just me with my black hat on even hackers can be comedians too it's absolutely class i think it's uh it is it is quite funny as as much as the, there is the serious message behind it about the disconnect between security and the business ideas um it, it does highlight um the bane of our lives which is that often security teams are the ones to spot issues on new infrastructure shadow it let's say um and we're the ones that are there to save the day and discover this new application when it's been popped in some way so you know we really show to businesses what the worth of having a security team is because without people spotting this there's bound to be more unseen issues but yeah i think the harry mega marker thing going to to the gold digger is uh, is actually quite funny and you know you don't have to be politically correct to say you agree or dis- disagree personally you know apart from will being one ginger on this podcast i think harry's probably the only other main ginger i've got a lot of respect for are you related to harry harry is a hero he's a ginger hero really. <laughs> he's waving he's, the uh, flag for you isn't he he is and he's doing us he's doing us a I think he's doing us proud. He's a good lad. And you do us proud too, Will. Don't let's not leave you out. You're a good lad. Right, moving on to a couple of uh, more meaty topics that we've seen. The first one is um, all around the Information Commissioner's Office or the ICO um, deferring GDPR fines during the COVID-19 pandemic. And this is really interesting. So at a really high level, looking at the ICO's websites and their FAQ section around COVID-19, the question has been asked, will the ICO take regulatory action against businesses um, during the time of COVID-19? And their response on the website is quite simple. It says, no, we won't penalise organisations that we know need to prioritise other areas or adapt to their usual approach during this extraordinary period. I think that's really interesting. Firstly, I think it's good for the ICO to recognise that this pandemic has caused so much strain onto businesses that, you know, simple abilities to respond to the timeframes they've laid out before and to adhere to the regulations is really difficult. Um, And the last thing you want is, you know, more problems being caused because they're trying to rush through, you know, getting hold of um, data or reporting a data breach. Also, I think it's important to call out the fact that uh, businesses should be aware that even though these sanctions have been relaxed slightly, it's not an excuse for bad data privacy practice or or incident reporting. It just means that the ICO are going to allow you the time in which you need to respond appropriately given the scenario. You can imagine that as soon as things are back to quote unquote normal that they'll come down harshly as we have already seen against companies like Marriott or or British Airways. Yeah, I mean I've had a read of the um the FAQ that um that you mentioned. Um it, it's actually a, a really good FAQ I think. Um it's a great start for where businesses can go and um and kind of get some quick answers. What you will learn with the ICA in my last role I spent some time in the communications intelligence unit. Um and a lot of that was based around data privacy and um, data protection and, and uh, Ripper and stuff. Um, so I had quite a lot of dealings uh, with both ICOs and also the way ICOs interpret things and interpret the law. Um, so I guess I got quite used to what they say. And they do use quite similar wording. So um, if I go to a particular one of interest that was kind of um, on the FAQ, uh, the questions. The question is, can I share employees' health information to authorities for public health purposes? Now, the, the reply from the ICO there is, yes, it's unlikely you, your organisation will, will have to share information with authorities about specific individuals. But if it is necessary, then data protection law won't stop you from doing so. Um, which sounds 
a little bit weird when you first read it, I think. And I think really ultimately the the, the takeaway from that is the ICO essentially are believe that you're unlikely to have to share specific personal data about health of individual employees. What they're probably looking for you to sh- um, looking for to share with Public Health England is more stuff around, you know, the numbers um, of infections uh, in your organisation or in a particular site. Um, however, what they are saying is essentially, if you can, if if Public Health England need more specific data, and you and and they and Public Health England have justified the request for that data, then you can give over more specific health information. And what it comes down to is whether the um, whether the request is both proportionate and necessary. And the whole proportionate and necessary is a really common term used in, well, it's, com- it's a common term used in policing and especially around things that affect people's privacy and human rights. Um, so when, we, when they talk about proportionate, what they mean is, um, you know, in this case, um, you know, making sure that what you're sharing is not too much. So you're not oversharing information and necessary, obviously, is, is, you know, is there a lawful or a legal or a, in this case, a public health need for you to share that data? Really interesting to see, you know, from your experience in law enforcement, how that um, is concerned with with privacy and privacy law. And I definitely think it is something to consider um, if, you know, I, I haven't heard of any cases at the moment where Public Health England have gone to organisations to ask for stats on coronavirus. I, I really think that most HR operations or or, or, or or companies wouldn't actually know that information, um, but definitely worth calling out what the ICO's stance on it is and, and how they're, you know, looking to respond to that. I think it can look, perhaps, like you say, um, as if uh, the data protection law isn't, isn't fit for it, but actually... What it comes down to is is the ICO know full well that there is a need to share information um, in businesses and in society. Um, and all they are saying really is you can share whatever information you need to share as long as there is a legal purpose to share it and it's just and it's proportionate and justified. Um, you know, and the idea is that companies that share information that isn't any of those things um, can, you know, can then potentially be looked at for breaches and and uh, fines and etc. Okay, and the last one, and actually, uh, I think is probably the most interesting and most recent of the news that we'll be talking about in this episode, is around how Google and Apple have teamed up or are working with governments and organisations for contact tracking around the coronavirus. Essentially, what this means is that they will use their the data available to them, the applications available on their tool set to notify users if they have come in contact with somebody who is suspected or confirmed to have had coronavirus. This is really interesting to see a clear line between um, privacy um, and the kind of big brother is always watching George Orwell mentality, but also using this information for a force of good. I think this will really split public opinion. Um, it will definitely split opinion within the data privacy cybersecurity world. Alex, I'll be interested to understand what your actual take on this from a personal level is. My view is that um, whilst I agree that big tech conglomerates who have access to billions of pounds and more resources than the government should be helping to deal with this pandemic in every way they can. Is this contact tracking going a little bit too far? Is this going to put people off using these devices? And are we going to see serious ramifications or changes in law because of this? 
So I think first of all, like Bravo, the intention is there, right? The uh, the the working together of two of the arguably biggest competitors in the tech field at the moment uh, to to come together during this pandemic and during a, a public health crisis is really commendable. Uh, but as you say, has this gone a little bit too far? So the way they plan on doing this is by APIs and also then eventually using Bluetooth. So it's a little bit futuristic, in my opinion. It's a little the fact that I can be walking down the street and then receive a report of who I've walked past and someone else can know if they've walked past me. And if I've had coronavirus, it could be argued that that is a little bit too far. And on one other hand, where's the when is the data breach going to come? As soon as I saw API, my thoughts went to API security. How long will it be before someone's attacking this? Or how long is it going to be before this data is left on an unprotected cloud instance, as we're seeing with every other organization at the moment? So while the intention is there, there is the argument that it's a little bit too far and it's a little bit too futuristic. You'd like to think, and I'm sure most of the general public will think that, oh, no, it's Apple, it's Google. They're not going to be able to be hacked. They're going to be super secure and all of this. Um, we all both know that every company is um, vulnerable in some way. You just have to look at the security of Android and look at the security of iOS to know that there are multiple vulnerabilities and flaws. And whilst I agree with you that, yes, when will the data breach happen? Everything around, you know, API security, you know, uh, data storage in the cloud and how that's that's secured is really interesting. You'd like to think that the likes of Google and Apple would be able to um, lock that down sufficiently enough to um, uh, raise public opinion or raise uh, public confidence in the fact that this 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 contact tracking is going on. I think again, it's going to be really interesting to watch it pan out. I think it is a good idea. It reminds me of a really depressing or crap version of the, the dating app Happen, which you, which basically matches you to people who are in your vicinity that essentially you walk past. So um, I think that's quite funny, really. You can either be out there trying to date or you can be out there trying to see if you've been infected, whatever floats your boat. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the game Watch Dogs. It's extremely futuristic. And the fact that you can be walking down the street and identifying people based on their health conditions uh, is is problematic. I would say we combine the data with the dating app so that when you match with somebody, you know what their health status is and you know if they're a good match or not based on how infected they are or not. Maybe that's just a really bad idea. I don't know, but... Like a walking Petri dish. <laughs> Literally, yeah, absolutely a walking Petri dish, yeah. It's like the science experiment you did in school will... We'll, this might have been way too long ago for you to remember, but right. we used to leave um, a, a slice of bread, one in the cupboard and one in the fridge, and you'd see which one grows mould quicker. FYI, it's, it's the one that's left in the cupboard. Okay, guys, that finishes the cyber news for this week. Thanks for going away and having a look into those really interesting stuff, as always. But now it's time to jump into something a little bit more technical. Okay, so this week's focus on intelligence and our technical topics. We'll start with the news of the new, or newly discovered, I should say, Dark Nexus IoT botnet. So this is the news of a newly identified IoT botnet discovered by researchers at Bitdefender. This botnet targets exposed or vulnerable routers, CCTV uh, recording devices, and Internet of Things devices that are exposed on the internet. Initially using Telnet brute force, it aims to gain access to these vulnerable devices to set up persistence and deploy further software to make it part of a botnet. 
Researchers are already calling out similarities to the Miro botnet. And for those that don't know, the Miro botnet is essentially um, a botnet that was used to take the internet offline a few years ago. The expectation is that this botnet will be used for DDoS for hire. Although, as you can imagine, with any botnets used for the mass, DDoS for hire is only one of the potential options that could be used. I find this IoT botnet really, really interesting. It's, it's not the first time we've seen somebody paint around the new Mirai botnet that's been there before. Um, and it's not the first time we're aware that IoT devices and vulnerable routers and CCTV DVRs are being exploited. It's interesting to understand how this botnet works. Essentially, once the vulnerable device has been brute forced and they have access to the, the device, it then deploys its persistence technique and more malicious software disguising as a common Unix file utility called BusyBox. Now, everyone is saying, or the researchers saying, and the intelligence suggests that this will be used for mass DDoS for hire. And although DDoS is not going away anytime soon and DDoS for hire or part of hacking as a service is increasingly more popular now, it's fair to say that that is probably only one of the uses for this botnet. What I find really interesting here is the fact that it uses almost credential stuffing or brute force attacks to access the vulnerable devices in the first place, which would assume that they're using a botnet to do so. Essentially, they're using a botnet to create a botnet. I'd like to call that botnetception, but mitigation for this is kind of common. They're able to access the vulnerable routers mostly by known default usernames and passwords or firmware issues. I think this goes back to real security basics around if you're deploying something that's sitting on the internet or you've bought an application out of the box, change the default password, change the default username, make sure your software's up to date. And as always, disable what's not being used. Now, to people that work in the security industry, to Alex, to Will, this is really normal for us. It's it's kind of security 101. But to somebody that just wants CCTV to look at their Porsche or their Ferrari on their driveway, if, they, if they're so lucky to own one of those, they're not going to know to disable unused ports or they probably won't think about changing the username or password. I think more needs to be done for people running software like this or IoT vendors to state or force that these passwords should be reset. Otherwise, we're just going to be encouraging malicious actors to target these devices to create their botnets. My thoughts on it, um, I think that ultimately, you know, these manufacturers are selling insecure devices um, to some extent. And that's that's a big shift, I think, that needs to kind of happen to the whole IoT industry really is. Currently, the, the, I think the IoT industry is currently set up for their primary goal when they're making these devices is it's all about connectivity and maximum connectivity make sure things are easy to use and can connect to everything what they're not really addressing at the forefront is is the security side of things when it comes to selling these devices you know i think maybe there should be some sort of scheme or something that, that or some way of, of encouraging these manufacturers to to improve this the, the default security on them um because like you say if i'm buying a, a ip camera for my to keep an eye on my, on my motorbike. Um, if I didn't work in the security industry, I probably wouldn't give two hoots about, you know, changing the password or, or any other security for that matter. Or all, all I care about is getting that camera to cover my bike. Yeah, I agree with you. There a lot needs a lot more needs to be done on the vendor side of things. And quite frankly, these people aren't in it to build secure devices. They're here to a, make money and, and build a product that they think will sell. What I find more interesting is that people are banding about that this new botnet, Dark Nexus, is being compared to the likes of Mirai, which means we could expect mass, large-scale, huge 
denial of service attacks. You can expect they'll be against the tech conglomerates or the ISPs of the world to try and really impact our day-to-day working or day-to-day operation. When the Mirai botnet happened, everything came down more or less. There were periods of the internet where you couldn't get onto social media, you couldn't access what you normally would, and it caused mass amounts of disruption. Is a lot of this scaremongering or is this likely to happen? We know that DDoS as a service and hacking as a service is going up. Alex, what do you think of the dark nexus botnet and what do you think this means for the future of IoT security? See, now, I don't think it's scaremongering at all. I think it's entirely possible that we are in for a huge DDoS attack uh, to come in the future. Uh, and the reason for that is that these devices out there are still not secured and they're being shipped from default and they're not secured. So as Will said, uh, if I want an IP camera or I want an IP device just to use it for its very basic purpose, if I want a kettle, I want a kettle that's IP, I don't care how secure it is. If I want a camera, I just want a camera, I don't care how secure it is. So I do think there's gonna be uh, large scale DDoS attacks as we do have DDoS as a service, as you've mentioned. So what I would like to see in the future for security of IoT is mandatory 2FA. So if you go back a little bit and look at the evolution of the password, there never used to be any mandatory length. You never used to have to have a number or a symbol. Look how far that's come. Lots of common online services are now enforcing strong passwords with numbers, symbols, three random words. They're enforcing 2FA. So I think in the future, we're going to get to a situation where the IoT manufacturers are enforcing 2FA by default. I agree. And just to touch on the the evolution of passwords, I think it's already been spoken about a world where there are no passwords. And this is something we won't delve into today, but definitely something we want to talk about on a future episode is that with all the issues we're seeing with IoT security and, and normal user security anyway, the brunt of it is you get access to someone's account via getting their username and password. You more or less have keys to the kingdom in some way whether it's to their personal account, whether it's to the IoT device to create botnets or whatever it might be. So absolutely, we need to go back to how we secure it right at the basic level. 2FA is a brilliant answer to that. Most people, however, that aren't in the security or any form of tech industry see 2FA as an annoyance or um, a way of slowing down what they'd normally do within a couple of clicks. I think as a if I, if I was a consumer and this is more specific about denial servicing, you know, if uh, if I had my IP <clears throat> fridge, kettle, coffee machine, whatever, um, and someone came in and said said to me, "Did you know that your um, you know your your devices are compromised, and they're DDoSing someone?" Do I care as a consumer, as, as an average consumer? Um, probably not. As long as it's not affecting the way that I use that machine or I use that service, you know, if it's causing someone else a problem, then you know, then as a consumer, I doubt, I doubt many people really give give a damn. So actually, I think that pushes the responsibility back on the manufacturers in some ways that, you know, um, it shouldn't be up to up to the consumers, in the, you know, ultimately to uh, to care about how their devices are misused. There's also the thought that, you know, if, if somebody had access to your car at night, had access to your car keys, and they were using that to go and do hit and run accidents and run people down in the road, but leaving it on your driveway parked in a normal condition that you're completely fine with it. It's just like, you know, as much as yes, it's a tech device that uh, you don't really care about if someone is using it or security or not. The fact is that these botnets can 
and do cause serious impact on either business organizations or singular people okay it's not as extreme as mowing somebody down in the road with your car but let's be honest we all have seen the impact that a serious cyber attack can have on an organization and you know would you really sleep well at night knowing that you are part of the problem the coronavirus has really helped that by looking at headline news where they're highlighting that these scams are going on and it's really putting the forefront in the on the impact that can have to people and services if you could imagine a significant cyber attack against the NHS now, it would absolutely cripple the country. And that is something that I think keeps most of us awake at night. To all of those peers and colleagues who are working in the healthcare sector on cybersecurity, we thank you. Uh, keep up the hard work. And, you know, we really hope that nothing like this does happen. On a similar related topic, I was reading the register earlier this week looking into um, a topic on a 3D printer. And this was a 3D printer that had basically been exploited and vulnerable to essentially set fire to it. This is also known as flashing with a PH where you exploit a device for um, permanent damage. It's, I found this incredibly interesting, not only that they're discussing the increased usage of 3D printers, which although yes, we know they're quite cool and their usage is on the up, they're not considered a normal household item at the minute. The research goes into a lot, of, a lot of depth about how they can exploit this to set the printer ablaze. But the company have already stated that the 3D printer comes with a port open, which has no authentication. They're not exactly understanding that that's a problem. However, they've also mentioned that this port being opened with no authentication appears across a number of different vendors in the IoT 3D printer market. And realistically, I know these devices are cool and they're good to use and as they grow in popularity surely this needs to be addressed but on the topic of flashing i find it really interesting the fact that you can exploit the device to set it on fire and cause thousands of pounds worth of damage in this particular case yes you do have to be on the network in order to exploit it and you do have to have access to the system in some way however we all know how easy it is to jump onto somebody's network if these printers become more and more common in households we know that household Wi-Fi security is probably one of the weakest out there, and you can expect that hacktivists or chances will jump on these vulnerabilities, A, to maybe create a botnet, as we've already discussed earlier, but also to create damage and potentially even cause serious impact by house fires or whatever it might be. I mean, I think I have seen uh, certain large high street coffee shop chains who have their printers on their guest network. Uh, so you're saying about this attack needs for you to be on the network. Well, there you go. Here's an open network. We're already on it. Uh, and the next extreme step to that, if we're using this vulnerability and this exploit, we're burning down a coffee shop. And that's how serious it can be. Um, it, it's a really interesting crossover from cybersecurity into physical security, where you're starting off exploiting a network vulnerability, and then you're causing some real physical financial damage to an establishment. Physical security in most companies is considered separate to that of digital or cyber security. In a lot of organizations, those teams are now starting to merge, which is exactly what should be done. More often than not, you look at the companies that specialize in threat intelligence or digital risk. They're able to identify when or if people are talking about committing acts against physical security, such as, you know, ramming a bus through the door or, you know, uh, whatever it might be. And you're really clear to call out there is a connect now between how you can hack a device on a network or, or a vulnerable IoT device and then use that to cause actual physical damage to an environment or to an organisation. Something we'll only see more of and something that should definitely be linked together to say that, you know, by protecting your assets, by doing the security basics, resetting the passwords, closing default ports, you're actually protecting probably a lot more than just your network and your users. You're 
you're actually protecting the physical assets you own, the buildings you work in and everything else in between. And that leads us on to our last topic, which Will has been looking into this week. So, Will, talk to me. Yeah, so I, I read an article the other day um, that was talking about the fact that um, two security firms um, have found thousands of usernames and passwords um, being sold on the dark web. Um, those credentials were for various video conferencing platforms. Um, most probably they were Zoom accounts, um, but I think there were a smattering of others in there as well. Um, and I think that's obviously quite a quite a biggie in some ways that um, we all know that since the coronavirus there's been a huge shift to targeting um, remote workers. Um, and I think this is probably the, the, the start of what will probably be quite a large scale collection eventually of credentials that are completely um, based around around um, video conferencing. It links quite happily onto well what we were talking about previously around Zoom and the impact we'll see against other vendors in the same space. It almost paints a full circle picture for security, which is that, yes, you can have an application that's vulnerable and you might patch the application. But if your user accounts for this software is being exploited or being sold on the dark web, you need to come at your security for these applications from every single angle. Now, for most organizations, linking this software into their single sign-on or whatever AD controls they might have, sharing username and password, you can mitigate these issues quite easily. However, with the increased usage of these tools and more and more you know, the average Joe using them, I think that the fact that these accounts for sale really can show increased risk to these applications and, and who knows what might happen. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's a few things that that you can kind of keep an eye out for. I think that might help um, organisations, you know, to sort of try and get ahead of it. I mean, I think video conferencing based phishing emails, I think will be, uh, you know, I think the volumes of those will continue to increase. Um, so phishing attempts that are, you know, looking for you to specifically give your credentials for Zoom or whatever. Um, I think that we'll see more potential cred, uh, cred stuffing against people's accounts for video conferencing differently, um, which again kind of feeds back into, um, you know, the, the fact of about, you know, password hygiene uh, and also social media hygiene as well. You know, making sure that it's not really easy for someone to go into your social media pages or LinkedIn and stuff like that um, and dig out, um, you know, uh, usernames or, you know, credentials that or information that might help them brute force. That, that's a really interesting topic, right? And I've seen something floating around LinkedIn recently, which is um, during this pandemic, there's this, uh, I don't want to call it chain mail because that sounds like I'm stuck in the 90s, but um it's, a, it's basically a list that people are posting on social media stating their favourite film, their favourite pet's name and all this intimate, well, all this information about themselves. Um, and for a hacker, that is a gold mine um, because you're getting an insight into what their possible passwords might be. You know, it's not hard to create some form of word list against that. And like you said, Will, credential stuffing or brute force attacks against a particular system or application using that information is really key. 
the actual image I saw, and I think it was on LinkedIn, was uh, um, the list of, you know, favourite film, pet's name, the de- where you went to school, all this information. And for each answer, it was the do not post information yeah. that might give hackers a chance. And it's, uh, you're absolutely right to call out. And again, I think it's all to do with this pandemic and the fact they're all being used, being forced into some form of digital age and, and the social contact we might have by sharing this information to try, try and generate some form of conversation to help you feel less lonely like we've already said right it is a hacker's gold mine they will use that information to their advantage if they can if you're sharing it on things like linkedin or facebook make sure your profiles are private i don't know about you but for me i don't like the fact that someone could just stumble across my facebook profile and be able to view everything i've ever done or ever posted on it it's kind of innate for me now just to kind of lock that down and lock down the privacy controls if I can for most social media platforms it's a really easy choice to do now but it just goes to show that little bits of publicly accessible information can really give an attacker an upper hand all right Will Alex thank you so much for your thoughts on that that ends this week's topics of intelligence and technical stuff let's jump into the last segment okay here we are we are at Secrets from the Sock. So again, to explain to our listeners, Secrets from the Sock aims to lean on the experience that we have working on the front line within a sock and progressing through the different types of roles and stages that there might be there. So Alex, I know this is something that you wanted to talk about this week. We're looking into the importance of self-learning and what that means for a security analyst. Please enlighten me. So I wanted to touch on the concept of self-learning. So I've been a SOC analyst. It was really, really apparent to me is, is, you know, the question I keep asking is how do I better myself in this field? How do I learn new concepts, new ideas, and how can I be the best version of me at my role? Um, And for some people that is taking certifications. Uh, Unfortunately, not everyone can afford certifications. Not every company is willing or not every company can afford to send their employees or their stock analysts uh, for certification training. There is a huge treasure trove of self-learning and self-development platforms out there. If we're looking at our offensive skills, we have uh, areas such as Hat the Box, but we also have areas such as Site. And don't underestimate YouTube. There's so much free information out there. And especially during the pandemic, I know a number of platforms that usually charge for their services are currently giving either free trials or giving their cybersecurity training out for free. So I'll call out Pluralsight in particular. There's some really, really good free content on there at the moment. The reason why this is so important is that it's very, very easy as a SOC analyst, especially as a new SOC analyst, to get weighed down with the idea of not progressing, not developing yourself, and just being stuck in a little bit of a rut. You know, you're 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 coming in, and maybe you're doing some eyes on glass monitoring, and you feel like your day doesn't have anything new happening, and you're not bettering yourself. Well, I think it comes down to the actual adage of you learn something new every day. And what I did that what I did for myself, and how I got to where I am in my career, is making that an actual mantra for every day. I need to learn something new every day. I've been in plenty of situations, I've been in major instances where I've been chucked into a situation where I don't actually understand what's happening. There's been a brand new technology that's been impacted and I have to go and learn it on the fly. And that's a really, really important key skill is to be able to teach yourself because you're going to find yourself in a situation as a SOC analyst where you're not going to be spoon fed information and you're not going to have someone walking you through concepts. 
So you need to learn how to teach yourself. Understanding those tactics, techniques, and procedures is really, really important. You need to get yourself into that attacker's mindset. If you come up across something that you're not familiar with, take a note of it and make time in your own time if you have to, to teach yourself that because it will come in really, really important in your career. What I would want to also say is that it's no news to everyone that sock burnout is a thing and that security analysts from my experience are some of the most hardworking people that you can be in a room with, that they're constantly firefighting, investigating something, responding to an IDS alert, doing instant response or forensic analysis. And me as a SOC analyst, when I was there, I really struggled to find the time to do that self-learning. I also wanted to touch on what it means to be a leader in that space, to be a manager of a SOC or to be somebody that looks after SOC analysts. It's really important that you understand, you recognise that self-learning and and, uh, and training is really important. Now, when we all know that training is you know, a hot topic in most organisations. It's not cheap. SANS courses alone can cost anywhere near six to £7,000, which for most companies is not an expense they're willing to spend. But encouraging self-learning and encouraging the use of tools like Alex mentioned, Hack the Box, um, and some of the Vulnhub stuff that allow you to practice in a safe environment is really key that you back your SOC analysts to do that. Make sure they have time in order to do this. Make sure it's part of their development plans if your organisations use those to really press the fact that self-learning is key. In our team meetings, we had a section at the end of every session which is all about weekly education and this was an analyst's opportunity to express what they have learned or a topic that they want to teach people. And I think this really encourages that mentality and feeds the curiosity, the natural curiosity that us as SOC analysts have. So I really fully agree and support the fact that it is important to educate yourself and to be in touch with the most relevant news, but also to dedicate time to do that and allow yourself that time to grow. For me, the best place I can point anyone who wants to learn about cybersecurity and understand a little bit more about what is going out there is this exact podcast. So I think what we'll tell everyone to do is that self-learning is fantastic and you should start with this podcast. Isn't that right, guys? Hell yeah. (laughs) And that wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks for joining us. We've all been sharing a beer here. I have been drinking something I found called Show Off by Camden Hells. Alex, what's been your tipple this week? So I will shamelessly admit I've gone for more than one. (laughs) I've gone for uh, what's called a Cali Pale by Tiny Rebel and also uh, Ghost Ship by uh, Adnams. So uh, Tiny Rebel and Adnams, if you're listening, uh, we're going to give you uh, some free advertisements. (laughs) Please sponsor our podcast. (laughs) We can only dream. Uh, I've also unfortunately gone through two as well um, because I have as much um, self-preservation as Alex does. Um, <laughs> I have been going for Brewdog 5am Saint. Can't go wrong with Brewdog. Um, and Northern Monk Faith. So that leads us to the time we wrap up this podcast. As always, we want to leave with something to take away and to finalise. I think one of the key takeaways for me is um, with the continued acceleration in phishing attempts on both that we're seeing for um, video conferencing. I think that now is a good time than ever really to make sure you're on top of your um, social media hygiene and password hygiene and going around making sure your social media is locked down you're not you know not posting anything that may compromise you and making sure that all your passwords are secure and not duplicated um, and I would very much encourage everyone to use a password manager because um, they're a real lifesaver. 
my key takeaway is that cyber criminals are moving with the times. Due to the current pandemic, video conferencing has peaked. They are now capitalizing on that by selling leaked accounts. As a cybersecurity defense analyst, you need to be on top of the times as well. So make time to self-develop and keep up to date with the news. And what I'll leave you with this week is linking back to the, the Google and Apple contact tracking apps. If you have concerns around your privacy online, make sure you take this opportunity this week just to delve into the privacy settings on your social media and other associated accounts and have it locked down to a place where you feel comfortable. Great. And that is the end of episode two. Guys, thanks for being on the podcast as always. Thank you to everyone that's listened to this. We hope you'd enjoyed it and we wish you the very best of weeks. Cheers, guys. See you later. <laughs>